This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. So I have the pleasure of filling in for Lieutenant Colonel Brian Emiola as the moderator for this morning's session. He just expedited his retirement to take a new job, so he departed West Point this last week, and uh, it fell to me to, to step in, in, in his place. So this morning's session, our final, final session, features Professor Jeff McMahon and Professor David Rodin. Um, on the topic of the, rev the revisionist school and the ethics of war, human rights and individual responsibilities. The format this morning is each of them will take a few minutes to highlight their approach to just war theory, a revisionist school that uh, stands in contrast to kind of the Walzerian standard model. So Professor McMahon will start and pre present his um, a summary of his view. Professor Roden will follow him and present a summary of his own view. And then the remainder of the time will be devoted to questions from the audience. Before I turn the time over to them, I'll just highlight the introduction to them that is featured in the program here. Jeff McMahon is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University and a distinguished research fellow at the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics, Oxford. He has been a Rhodes Scholar and Guggenheim Fellow and is the author of The Ethics of Killing, Problems at the Margins of Life, and Killing in War. He has several other books forthcoming from Oxford University Press, including a collection of essays called The Values of Life, a book on war intended for both academic and non-academic readers called The Right Way to Fight, and a sequel to his 2002 book called The Ethics of Killing, Self-Defense, War, and Punishment. David Rodin is a senior, senior fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs in New York and senior research fellow at, Ox at the University of Oxford. His publications include War and Self-Defense. A Rhodes Scholar from New Zealand, Professor Rodin has a Bachelor in Philosophy and a Doctor in Philosophy in Philosophy from Oxford University. He was previously senior research fellow at the Australian National University. He was the inaugural director of research at the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics and a founding member of the Oxford, of the Oxford Leverhulme program on the changing character of war. So with that, Professor McMahon. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for having us here. Uh, the plan that David and I have worked out is that we are going to try to uh, speak rather briefly in order to enable people in the audience to have time to discuss these issues with us, to pose questions, challenges, and give comments and so on. What I want to do is just set up a bit of background to the discussion by uh, very, very briefly describing a traditional approach to just war theory and then describing very briefly again the kind of revisionist alternative approach to this that David and I have taken and say a little bit about the uh, differing implications of the, the two approaches to the morality of war. The traditional understanding of the just war uh, tends to treat war as a conflict between states. It's state versus state, and soldiers are thought of as the instruments of states who are not themselves morally responsible for the justice or injustice of the wars in which they fight. They're responsible only for their adherence to the rules of the rules that govern the conduct of fighting. On this view, 
each soldier forfeits his or her moral right not to be attacked or killed because he or she poses a threat to others. You find this in the traditional understanding of the notions of innocence and non-innocence. If you're innocent, that means you're not posing a threat. If you're non-innocent, that means you are posing a threat. And you forfeit your right not to be attacked because you're posing a threat. So justified violence in war is, on the part of soldiers at any rate, is justified as a matter of self or other defense. That is, soldiers are permitted to kill not so much to advance the aims of their government, but rather to engage in self or other defense against others who pose a threat. And on this view, you can see the morality of combat is symmetrical between both sides. It's, uh, both sides are equally permitted to uh, engage in combat against uh, members of the military on the other side. Now, civilians don't pose any threat. They are innocent in that sense. Therefore, they are not legitimate targets in war. They have not forfeited their right by virtue of posing a threat. That's a very, very brief sketch of the traditional understanding of permissible conduct in warfare. The revisionist account of the morality of war that David and I have defended challenges this understanding of the justification for attacking and killing people in war. On our view, and the view of other revisionist just war theorists, um, soldiers are morally responsible agents, just like the rest of us. They're not just tools of the state. And their individual acts of violence and killing require moral justification. Those who fight in a just war, in support of a just cause, on this view, generally have a justification for attacking enemy combatants. And that is that the enemy combatants are morally responsible for a threat of serious, unjustified harm to others. That is what I take to be the criterion of liability to attack in war. It's not just that people pose a threat that makes them uh, morally liable to attack. It's rather that they are responsible for unjustified threats. That's what justifies uh, the soldier fighting for a just cause in attacking soldiers on the other side. And because soldiers who are fighting for a just cause by permissible means in a just war don't do anything wrong in attacking enemy soldiers, that is because they are morally justified in attacking enemy soldiers, they don't forfeit any of their rights. They don't thereby make themselves morally liable to be attacked or killed. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing anything that could account for their losing any of their moral rights. Therefore, they're not morally liable to be attacked or killed, provided that they are, their action supports just goals and is carried out by permissible means. 
But because they're not morally liable, because they haven't forfeited their rights, those on the unjust side who attack them are doing wrong. They are acting impermissibly. So there's, on the revisionist view, a really profound moral asymmetry in combat between soldiers whose action supports just goals and those whose action supports unjust goals. And that's true even when those on the unjust side restrict their violent action to soldiers on the just side. Even when they're attacking soldiers, they're doing wrong. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily blameworthy or deserving of punishment. Uh, that's a separate question. But they are doing wrong. And that's the fundamental revisionist challenge to the traditional view. It's a, it's a challenge about what it's permissible to do in the conduct of war. So what I claim and David claims is that the permissibility of action in warfare can't be separated from the question whether the goals of the war are just or unjust. Now in this respect, the revisionist account of the morality of war is morally much more restrictive than the traditional view is. It says that in general, it is impermissible morally to fight and kill in support of aims that are themselves unjust. It can't justify the killing of other people. So in that way, the revisionist approach is more restrictive. But there is another respect in which you might think that the revisionist approach is actually more permissive. It's more permissive, arguably, about what can constitute a just cause for war than the traditional view is. It's more permissive precisely because it understands action in war at the individual level. And also because of certain features of the traditional view. I'll, I'll just briefly mention two respects in which I think it's plausible to believe that the revisionist approach is more permissive than the traditional approach. One of these is in humanitarian intervention. Uh, I gather uh, David Lubon yesterday uh, mentioned the domestic analogy. This is the idea that states are like individual persons, or states are sovereign individuals. And the same principles that govern conflict among individual persons also govern conflict among individual states. Now, on this view, which is deeply anti-individualist, because states are regarded as individuals, on this view, when one group within a state is attacking another group within the state, this is analogous to an individual harming himself. Remember, the, the state is one thing. It's this sovereign individual. Um, so 
War is this relation between states, and the resort to war is justifiable on the traditional view, really only when one state attacks another state. And what goes on within states is the matter of the sovereign prerogatives of that individual. So humanitarian intervention, according to the domestic analogy, is like unwarranted paternalism. It's like trying to stop an individual from harming herself. It obliterates the distinctions among or between individuals within the state. But that's not true on the revisionist approach. The revisionist approach is concerned with the rights of individuals. And if individuals' rights in another state are being systematically violated, that can provide a just cause for defense of those individuals, even though they are citizens of another state. Second way in which the traditional view might be thought to be more restrictive is in its approach to preventive war. Uh, what I wanted to say about that is, is this, that you remember what I said right at the beginning, namely that um, the justification for for, that soldiers have for killing enemy soldiers in war is that the enemy soldiers are actively posing a threat. That's what makes them legitimate targets. But if a state hasn't attacked yet, nobody is actively engaged in posing a threat to others. And so there's no one who is <coughs> legitimate to attack. There's no one who's forfeited his rights not to be attacked. Therefore, there can't be any justification for preventive war. Now, it's true that many of the classical just war theorists accepted that there was a justification for preventive war, as, as David mentioned to you yesterday. But the kind of understanding that we find in Michael Walzer's Just and Unjust Wars and in the tradition that uh, led to uh, Walzer's book, this idea that people are retain their moral immunity from attack until they begin actively posing a threat to others seems to me as a matter of logic, to rule out the permissibility of purely preventive war, because it means there can't be any targets for attack who have actually forfeited their rights, unless there's been an actual attack. That's not true according to the revisionist approach. The revisionist approach, at least in principle, is open to the possibility that people can make themselves morally liable to attack in ways other than actively attacking other people. That's an option that's open to the revisionist account, but I think really not open as a matter of principle to at least Walzer's version of the traditional understanding precisely because its criterion for liability to attack in war excludes this possibility. So that's all I wanted to say. Um, David's going to take over and um, say a bit more about uh, some of the implications of the theory and some of the possible differences between the two of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you um, for the invitation to be here and the opportunity to spend this time in conversation with you here this morning. Um, just before I begin, I just wanted to uh, say what a particular pleasure it is to be sharing the podium here this morning with, uh, with Jeff. Jeff, as I'm sure all of you in the room are aware, is really just a, a towering figure in this field. 
and has tremendously shaped, I think, the way that everybody has been thinking about these issues in this field for quite some time now. And, and more than that, he's just also been a, a wonderful friend and mentor for me. So I just wanted to, to take the opportunity to, to recognize that and to, and to thank you for it. Well, thanks for saying that. I should also say that David has been uh, one of the two, two or three most important interlocutors for me as well. I've learned as much from you as you have from me, I'm sure. So thank you, David. Okay, Hi. enough of that. Anybody else want to pray? Um, so listen, I think the, the question that we're asking here this morning is, assuming that we accept some version of the idea that a fundamental obligation on all of us as human beings is to conform our action to the basic rights of other people, and that this applies to all persons irrespective of their role within social structures. Assuming that we accept some variant of that idea, what follows from that? And I have to say that from my perspective, I think it's, it's extremely difficult to deny that starting premise. Right? So it seems to me that whatever else is part of your moral view, some variant of that idea, you know, that very, very basic idea that human beings possess rights that among one of the most significant of those is the right not to be killed or attacked, and that that right applies to everyone everywhere is pretty much inescapable in today's moral domain. So the question is, what follows from that? And in particular, what follows from that for the way that we think about a range of issues in the ethics of war. So Jeff has, I think, given us a really a beautiful um, summary of the debate that's played out uh, over the last 10 years or so, which has carried us into questioning some of the very fundamental ways that we had thought about the ethics of war in the period prior to that. There's debate about whether we want to call that the, tr the traditional view, because, of course, just war tradition is very, very long, and at different times it's displayed certain kinds of positions along the spectrum. But certainly it was a view that was very dominant prior to the turn of the millennium, I guess. Now, what I'd like to do is, is I think, just talk about, about three points that pick up on some of the things that Jeff has posed. I want to say a few words about prevention. I want to say few, a few words about um, how we think about basic just ad bellum rights, in particular about, um, about the idea of sovereignty and territorial integrity as a kind of core and fundamental basis for thinking about just cause. And then I want to think about a few ways in which we may think about the terrain of ethics of war or just war theory expanding beyond the way that we've traditionally conceived it and how some of these arguments about revisionism play into that. So first of all, Jeff ended his remarks by pointing out that um, the revisionist approach is potentially, has a more permissive approach to preventive war than um, had been present in thinkers such as Michael Walzer. Now, I have to say that my own reading of that is, um, is that that potential does exist there in theory, but then in practice, Prevention is going to be very, very difficult to justify, even on this more individualistic, uh, revisionist view. Why might that be? Right, so what the revisionist essentially says is that a person can become liable to harm, to lethal harm, when he is responsible in a sufficient way for posing an unjust threat on others. Now, if you think about a standard preventive war case where you have very good reason to believe that a state or other collective agency may be about to conduct an unjust attack at some point in the future but has not commenced that now, 
and hasn't even undertaken the operational maneuvers or steps towards undertaking that. Right? So it hasn't begun massing forces at the border. You have to be thinking about a situation where the troops are essentially doing what they're always doing. They're at barracks, they're training, they're undergoing and conforming to the normal activities of soldiers in peacetime. But they will be turned into unjust assailants at some point in the future. But they haven't undertaken that step yet. So one way of thinking about this, you take a, um, a thought experiment. Uh, so imagine that I'm, I'm looking through a binoculars at my nemesis. And, my nemesis is reading through a set of papers, and in those set of papers is a letter proving my infidelity with his wife. And I know that this man is a very, very irascible and, and quick to temper and, and dangerous person. I know that as soon as he reads this letter, he will form and start to act upon a murderous intention towards me. And at that point, he will pose an unjust threat to me. And I can know that, let's say, with a very, very high degree of certainty. But it strikes me that one of the things that the revisionist view is telling us is that until an agent has taken that step, right, that step of responsibly orienting themselves towards an unjust threat, they don't become liable to lethal force. It strikes me that that's going to pose a very, very significant challenge towards thinking about the permissibility of preventive war, even on the revisionist view. I want to continue this theme of thinking about revisionism as, in many ways, a very restrictive uh, way of thinking about the ethics of war by thinking a little bit about what it has to tell us about just cause. So if you think back to Michael Walzer and the traditional articulation of just cause, the sovereign rights of states are the kind of foundational bedrock just cause for war. Now, in theory, the permission to engage in a war of self-defense against an enemy that was threatening the sovereignty and territorial integrity of a state was limited by a requirement of proportionality, an ad bellum requirement of proportionality, in theory. But in practice, it was very, very clear that across a whole series of military <coughs> domains, that proportionality constraint was effectively deemed to be irrelevant. In other words, the, the value of the sovereignty of the state was essentially deemed to have to be infinite. And I think you can see this in, across a number of different domains. So if you think, for example, about strategic doctrine in this country through the whole of the Cold War, what both the United States and the, and the, and the Soviet Union were saying is that they were prepared to engage in a nuclear war that would annihilate the entire planet in order to defend the sovereignty of their state. Think about that for a minute. Think about what the implicit assumptions about <coughs> proportionality are in that strategic posture. Many of you may have served under that posture. And this you saw, you saw mimic, for example, in legal thinking. If you think back, for example, to the ICJ judgment that said that the court was unable to determine whether it would be impermissible to engage in nuclear war if the sovereignty of the state was fundamentally threatened. And I think you see it also reflected in Michael Waltz's discussion of supreme emergency. Although his argument is more subtle, it's limited in certain significant ways, but the basic idea there again is that when the, fund, when the sovereignty of the state itself is threatened with destruction, essentially all bets are off. Now, that's always struck me as a deeply, deeply mistaken view. And it strikes me that uh, the individualist rights-based account helps us to understand that. So some time ago, that I, when I, um, uh, in a book I published called War and Self-Defense, I gave an argument which I called the argument from bloodless invasion, which says, look, imagine that a state sovereignty is destroyed through a military action that threatens no lives at all. Completely bloodless invasion. What could be 
the justification, given constraints on proportionality, for engaging in a military action to resist it. Now, many people at the time said, this is completely crazy. This is a philosopher's thought experiment. It'll never happen. What's interesting about the past month, <laughs> for anyone who's been paying attention to Crimea, is that we have had a living in the flesh example of a bloodless invasion. Now, what I want to say that this tells us is also something very, very profound about, about just cause. The permissibility for using lethal force is restricted to the necessary and proportionate means to interdict a significant unjust threat to the rights and other vital interests of human beings, which I take to be a very, very narrow band of goods. And sovereignty and territorial integrity may or may not connect with that. Right? It's entirely possible to have an assault that destroys the sovereignty or territorial integrity of a state without threatening any of the lives or vital interests of persons. Now, I want to just finish off by, by reflecting a little bit about the way that we think about the project of the ethics of war, and the way that this orientation towards us can help to expand the way, the domain of this and the way that we think about it. So one of the very, very interesting things I think about traditional just war theory is that it focuses our attention very, very narrowly on essentially a series of questions around the moment of crisis. Right? So Yusuf Bellin asks us to consider what our rights and responsibilities are at the moment that we face an attack or a threat. And Yusuf Bello asks us to focus on a set of questions about rights and responsibilities when we are in the context of war, the social political phenomenon of war. Now more recently, over the last decade, partly because of events in Iraq and other places, we've rediscovered another element of the tradition, which is the US post-war. Right? Suddenly people realize, well, we, we also need to think about the stuff that happens after the war. So we expanded the temporal domain in that way. And also, a number of us noticed the fact that we needed to also think about the transition moment, not only the transition moment from the state of peace into the state of war, the Yusad Benin moment, but we also need to think about the ethics of the transition moment out of war. Right, the transition from a state of war into a state of peace. An idea that I've called in my writing the, the jus terminatio, Daryl Mollendorf calls it jus ex bello. Right, so the idea of focusing on that transition point. So we've expanded now. We have a conception of ad bellum, in bello, terminatio, post bellum. But we still ignore one of the most significant elements that shape and define our posture and our orientation towards these issues, which is what happens during the periods between conflict. During the peacetime when we are setting our policy, training our people, procuring our equipment, organizing our relationships, our alliances, the signals that we send, the military policy, an area that we might call the US interbellum. Now, I think this is an area that we philosophers who work in this have had very, very little to say about. And although the terminology around the decision to go to war and what we do within war has become very significantly imbued with moral thought, a lot of it very deep and very subtle, the way that we talk about our positioning between wars is almost completely conducted in terms of unreconstructed realism. We talk about using our military forces to assert power, to assert influence, and so forth. So I think that this is a this is a big 
terra incognita. It's a big, a big area where I think um, there are huge opportunities for developing uh, our moral assessment and moral analysis. I think that the revisionist uh, approach pushes us towards that direction of discovery, and I think that it helpfully provides us a set of tools to do so. But let me stop there and, um, and open it up to a more broader set of questions. Thank you. So thank you both gentlemen. The floor is now open. I will try to help uh, manage the asking of questions. So um, please gentlemen with the, with the hand up here. If you would stand, just introduce yourself and um, where you're from. Wiley Johnson, a local Baptist pastor and a retired chaplain. Um, gentlemen, uh, I'd like to ask both of you, what is the source of, of the rights that you speak of? I see. My my view is that they are natural rights, if uh, if I can put it in those terms. I I think that uh, people have rights in the same way in which they have arms and legs and that kind of thing. I mean, I, I I don't think that they get them from anywhere. This is a fundamental fact. So would you say as an act of creation or some other source? Uh, my, my approach is secular. So I, I have a, so it's a, it's a great question, a very important and profound question. So uh, within the um, philosophical tradition, there are a number of different answers to that. Let me, I'll give you very briefly my particular answer to that. Uh, so I think that we get a certain class of our most fundamental rights, including the right to life, from relationships of reciprocity with other moral so one of the features of um, many rights, including rights like this, is that they're reciprocal. Right? So I have the right that you not kill me, you have the right that I not kill you. Now I think that's important and I think that it's connected. So I think part of the reason why I have the right that you not kill me is that I am right now respecting and complying with the requirements of your rights that I not kill you. So I think that rights emerge out of mutual interactions of reciprocated respect and consideration. And that explains why, you know, if I pulled out a, a gun or a knife and tried to kill you, you would be released from your obligation not to kill me. Now, as I say, that's, that's a very particular account of where these rights come from, but that's, that's the way that I think about it. Okay, next question. Dr. Parsons. Thank you. Uh, really great opportunity to have you here. Um, I, I wonder if you could comment on one specific implication of your insistence that uh, soldiers are always responsible for the justice of the war. Uh, in particular, the implications of this on the legal status of a soldier domestically, so not the, the, the law of the conduct of war, but just what, what it means legally to be a soldier in a political in a political system. Um, soldiers, uh, as a matter of fact, they occupy a very atypical status. Uh, the state reserves the right to regulate them in ways that civilians, uh, it doesn't claim the right to do. Um, and uh, it, I, I'm just going to raise a fear to try to maybe provoke some thought. 
I fear that this this claim that you're making is actually a rejection of soldiers. Uh, what you're offering is an ethics for mercenaries. Uh, so, I don't understand. Sorry, Graham. I don't quite <laughs> understand the question. What? Can, can what what legal background? reforms for uh, the, the domestic law, military law governing soldiers do you think uh, are implied by this claim that soldiers are, are, are always responsible for the justice of war? Uh, it is a crime, uh, insubordination is a crime. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of paternalistic constraints. The state reserves the right to, to, uh, to impose upon soldiers that it does not uh, claim flexibility. So I'm wondering if you, you really think the whole institution of the military should be reshaped around a more civilian model. So well, this is a it's a legal privilege that the state claims, but I think that individual soldiers can have a moral right to resist the legal claims against them. I think we've all recognized that there are some instances in which it's not merely morally permissible, but actually morally required to violate the law. Sometimes the law requires us to do what morally we cannot do. Uh, uh, that's, that's all I think I'm arguing about. Uh, Many people, particularly revisionist just war theorists, have recently argued for the moral necessity of more liberal provisions for conscientious objection, even among active duty serving military personnel. And I'm one of those people. I do think that this is something that the other citizens of a state owe to their soldiers. We already impose great uh, moral and physical burdens on soldiers, but we make those burdens really intolerable if we threaten to punish people for their refusal to do what we may be wrongly commanding them to do. Yes, I mean, I think, what you say, I mean, I think it's an open question what the relationship is between these moral arguments and, and law. So I think it, in general it's a mistake to view these arguments as if we're having a kind of a, 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 a univocal uh, function across, across all the different domains. I think that they, they, they address themselves in a slightly different way to different constituencies. Right? So you can think about the constituency of those that, that um, that generate and promulgate international law. You can think about the situation for how we as a polity should make domestic law. And we can think about how just how it addresses us as, as human beings, thinking about whether to serve and how to engage with our service. And I think that um, these, these arguments may play out in slightly different ways and they address those different constituencies in, in, different, uh, in different terms. But you know, from my own view, um, I tend to think that on, on really fundamental issues like the morality of killing, there's got to be some very, very significant alignment between the way that we structure our laws and the way that we think about deep issues of morality. And in particular, I think it's something very, very problematic if you have a legal regime 
which you currently have, for example, in an international law. It's just a domestic law one side for the moment. International law creates a, um, a legal privilege for soldiers engaged in ad bellum unjust operations to kill persons who are not morally liable to be killed. And I just think that's 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 a morally untenable state of affairs. The question then is, you know, what 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 where do we get from there? What what's you know, how do we engage with that? And again, in our different roles, right? As a soldier, as a policymaker, as a citizen, that engagement will be different. But it does strike me that that is really a fundamental moral problematic that we have to deal with. Please, uh, down in front. Could down in front here, please? Sir, can I hear you mean, just to clarify your, your opposing um, moral asymmetry, um, uh, asymmetrical approach to morality, as in soldiers engaged on the just side do not have the not both of their rights, while those on the unjust side have both of their rights. Is that fair? Okay, so uh, my concern is that, in a way, it sort of strips our ability, um, our own rights to defend ourselves. For example, I, I, mean, I joined the service and I, I sought to defend my country. Then my country does something that like, engages in unjust war overnight. And that sort of makes it, um, that gives whoever we decide to attack, and it's my state's decision, so I don't necessarily have a say, and that those people who we attacked now have the right to attack me and to invade my home and attack me, and that seemed, and that seemed to strip away my ability to defend myself because they're considered the just cause. So I, that's not to protect your home, right? They can't come and kill your family. <laughs> your family hasn't done anything to them. But if you are ever in their country and you're directing lethal force against individuals who are doing no more than properly and appropriately defending their own rights, then it's very hard to see why they wouldn't possess the right to kill you. Can I just say a little something about that? Um, You, when you go to fight in this war that by hypothesis now is unjust, um, there you've made a choice to expose yourself to attack by the people your comrades in arms are attacking. It's among your options not to go there and join the fight. Uh, and that's what's important. That is. You've put yourself in the situation in which you either got to defend yourself or you're going to get hurt. But the question here is, is, is it morally necessary for you to put yourself in that situation? No. One of your options for your own self-protection is not to go expose yourself to the justified defensive action of others. So you imagine this just in, in this room. Okay. Uh, Danny starts um, unjustifiably beating up David and me and some other civilians here. But but we we're, 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 we're pretty tough. I mean, he may be a ranger. But but we start we start getting the best of yeah, well, the of us. And then so. He's unjustifiably attacked us. Now you, now you come in and start trying to defend Danny and attacking us as well. Are you permitted to do that? Or do you have a complaint if, if we then attack you as well? Um, 
Well, my, my main concern is not to actually, for example, Sam, the rear guard, I'm, I'm actually protecting, Sam, Department of Homeland Security or Coast Guard, I'm to protect our own borders and say overnight that my state declares an unjust war, then that other state finds it that the best way to defend themselves is to launch a counterattack. Then I find that they are in our, my own territory and they're coming to kill me for something that I did not exactly push for or decide to do for my state side. All depends on whether their action is justified, whether, whether you are permitted to resist. If their action is morally justified because this is the best means for these people who have been wrongly attacked to prevent the wrongful attack, and, and what they're doing is permissible, they're not attacking, they're attacking part of your you know, military capabilities, you're not permitted to resist their morally justified action. So what you should do is surrender. Yeah, I mean, I think the key here is that is that we just what we're saying here is that you need to think about these things in a much more granular way than, than we're used to thinking, right? So, you know, the way that you're approaching these questions is very influenced by the kind of state-oriented model where we think about what is this state done, what is our state done, what is the relationship between the states? Because what Jeff and I are saying is that that's just the wrong level at which to be asking the questions. What you need to be saying is, you know, look at particular operations, look at what particular units and particular individuals are doing. You have to identify what, what is the status of those actions, because it could well be that some of the guys on the other side are doing things that are completely unjustified. And where actually you may be completely justified in using force to interdict that. You know, let's say for example they're they're attacking civilians, right? They're attacking you know people who have nothing to do with the unjust harm, and you're in a position to stop it. Can you do that? Yes, you can. Um, but other parts of their of their of their army, their forces, may be doing things that are entirely justifiable. But so you just need to think about it in a, in a very different, much more granular way than we're used to thinking. Sir. Just a fair warning to the audience, I do want to privilege cadet questions, or student questions, sorry, let me clarify that. Um, we will try to do a, a balance of them both, but there was a gentleman in the blue blazer here that uh, I think had the next one. My name is Chris Wilson, I'm a mechanical engineer here at Bill and I just want to ask um, what the revisionist theory has on soldiers who may lack autonomy, for example, if they're being forced to fight beyond their wishes, or if they actually think that they're fighting for just cause. Start. Um, the best way to think about those cases, I think, is to see these people as having uh, strong excusing conditions for what they do. So in law, you may be familiar with the distinction between justification and excuse. Suppose someone uh, engages in homicide. In domestic law, that person would brought to court. And that person may, may be guilty of murder or something of that sort, or it may turn out that this person was actually engaged in wholly justifiable self-defense against a wrongful aggressor, in which case this person has a, has a justification defense in the law. This person will be acquitted because he, what he did was actually justified, even though looks like he's violated statutory law. In fact, he hasn't. Um, or it may turn out that um, Somebody put a hallucinogenic chemical in his orange juice that morning that caused him to go berserk, and he attacked somebody in this non-responsible state, and in that case, what the court will conclude is that he's excused. That is, he actually did commit the crime, 
he, he unjustifiably beat up somebody or something of that sort. But he wasn't acting fully morally autonomously because somebody had spiked his orange juice. So uh, he's excused. He won't get punished. Um, he did the wrong thing, but he's not held responsible for that. Um, you mentioned two types of excuse. One is duress, and the other is um, ignorance or epistemic limitation. And both of those are recognized excuses. But in war, uh, soldiers who fight in an unjust war under extreme duress are still doing something wrong, but they may well be excused for that. That is, they don't, they're not blameworthy, they don't deserve punishment, or their level of culpability may be very low. Same is true when they have, um, when they're acting under moral or factual uncertainty about the justice of their cause and so on. And those are difficult decisions to make. Uh, it, it's, we should acknowledge that to know whether one's war is just or unjust is not an easy matter. And th there are moral risks involved in arriving at that judgment and deciding whether to fight or not to fight. Uh, but what we're, all we're insisting here is that these are deliberations and decisions that individual soldiers have to engage with and have to make. Um, they can't just say, I'm a, I'm a tool, I'm an instrument, I'm not responsible, I'm just obeying orders. We go. Professor Betts down in front here. Uh, my name is Joe Betts. I'm a retired philosophy teacher here. I took at for 25 years. I'm taking advantage of the fact that I've read uh, Jeff's book. And in his book, he argues that there should be a new world for, and this is a question, uh, a new world for, and this new world for would decide in any war that broke out or was likely to break out, which would be the aggressor, which would be the defender, and informing those in the military of all the world uh, which, what their decision is, soldiers would know not to fight. Now, soldiers could be conscientious objectors. But I understand that the US Military Academy graduates could go into their five years of service, and the Naval ROTC students could go into their four or five years of service. It's just that it would be their decision uh, whether to fight in the war if the president commanded it. That is, the president would have to allow this conscientious objection. But hopefully, he would be guided by this new international court. Now, what that means is, um, if the president wanted to go to war in Afghanistan and the court decided against it, um, there might still be some individual soldiers who think they have their own arguments for why it's just war, in spite of what the international court decided. And they could go, and they would be excused. They wouldn't be justified, but they'd be excused. But one interesting thing about this is, it is we have a very different army than we had before. They can be there training on their bases, but they can't be deployed until some of these things happen. And actually, the army that it is now would be more like the mercenaries, because the army <coughs> that it is now would go, whether it's right or wrong, upon the commanding order. So have I interpreted all this correctly, what you said? Yeah. Well, my, my thought in proposing this kind of international, impartial, uh, judicial-like institution was that right now, the best source of guidance 
that soldiers have in trying to understand whether a war in which they are commanded to fight is just or unjust is usually, at least this is what they think, their own government. Their own government claims to have this authority to, to make decisions about the resort to war. And often this is done through uh, certain constitutional procedures that have been set up in advance. Uh, in this country, we, of course, have the, uh, the, the, the rule that it's the legislature rather than the executive that makes the decision about whether to go to war. Of course, that's not been honored since, I, as far as I know, since World War II. But um, that's, that's in, in the rule book anyway. Um, but I think it's really obvious that governments, even democratically elected governments, don't really have any moral authority with respect to decisions to resort to war. They, governments never call in theologians and just war theorists and, and, and so on to give them advice about the morality of war. As far as I know, that doesn't come up in the discussions at all. They, they consult with their legal advisors, but there's no procedural mechanism in place in any country in the world that I know of restricting a government's ability to resort to war on moral grounds. And until we have something like uh, that kind of institution in place, soldiers have to try to make these decisions on their own. And that's a, that's a bad state of affairs when we when we as citizens command soldiers to go to war and yet don't provide them with any moral resources with which to deliberate about their decision to go off and kill other people. It's a bad state. You go over the corner, please. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, uh, from West Point. Obviously. Uh, I'd like to depart from the uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to depart from the hypotheticals uh, briefly um, and return to the example of Crimea uh, raised earlier. Uh, this is uh, largely a matter of clarification, but hopefully it'll open up an avenue for potential productive discussion beyond clarification. How can you explain the difference, if and if there is any, between the evaluation of uh, the morality of the Crimea invasion or seizure or whatever it is we're uh, calling it between the revisionist school, which both you advocate, and the more traditional uh, Wolzarian approach. Yeah, so the difference is just this. So on the Wolzarian approach, you start with the idea of states being the foundational elements about war. And states, on the domestic analogy, are conceived as kind of individuals from their lives. So I always think about the, the you know, you've seen the promise piece of uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, where you have the picture of the, the state and why there's this giant bestriding the landscape. And he's made up of all these teeny tiny people right, in the state. So the idea is, all of us together, we make this big person. But the person, like any other person, has certain rights. And one of the rights is that he has the right to kill an assailant. Um, if his own life as a, as a sovereign entity is endangered. So this is kind of very much the model, right? So you have this idea that um, sometimes we call the regicide, right? Um, uh, right? Sorry, not regicide, um, 
Policide, policide, the, the, the destruction of the, uh, of, of the polity. Uh, and the idea is that just as an individual has the right to kill another individual, if his life is threatened, so a state has the right to engage in war against another state if its sovereignty or territorial integrity is threatened. Um, and it's pretty clear that that seems to follow even if no individual person is threatened with death or, or, or the destruction of their other vital interests. From the individualist point of view, there is no big person called the state. There are just all of us. And all of us are in different kinds of moral relationships with each other. Some of those moral relationships are mediated in very important ways by our states and other political entities. But at the end of the day, it's just individuals related to each other in particular ways. So that's the first point. The second point then is to notice how narrow the rights of individual self-defense are. Right? They're, they're really incredibly narrow. Um, it's the right to engage in lethal or other harmful acts, to interdict, when necessary and proportionate, unjust threats against the significant rights of ourselves or all others. It's a very, very narrow uh, right. And so in a situation like Crimea, you have to ask, what, in fact, are the rights that have been threatened? And are they sufficiently the rights of individuals here? Right? Not, not the right of the, of the state of Ukraine. That's just the wrong level at which we're looking at it. What are the rights of the particular citizens and individuals that are being threatened? And are they sufficiently grave to merit taking the step of war, which will inevitably mean the intentional killing and maiming of, of human beings? And it's with Professor Sherman. Thank you so much, Um That last point just uh, vexed me a bit because I'm not an advocate of collective identities, metaphysical entities, mysterious, um, big <coughs> entities without wills of, of clear sort. But in most of my life, forget war, but it's hard for me to imagine not being able to employ conceptually as a philosopher and a ordinary person that I personate, to use Pettit's word, you know, that, they're, they're, that, that I identify, not particularly psychologically or strongly or with a lot of will, but that I'm hooked up with entities larger than myself that dictate to some degree what I do, for which I'm, and I'm responsible for what they do, I'm liable in some ways, um, and you know, war is an extreme case of being a state, uh, 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 an instrument of war is an extreme case. But there are many, many other cases where you have to take on some of the shame, some of the pride, some of the think of all the reactive emotions that come with being members of collectives. So you propose very radical. I don't want to use the word reduction because it's, it brings up ugly ugly specters, but where, where is that yeah. notion of ourselves? Yeah. So, so look, it's, it's clearly you know, a very deep truth about ourselves as human beings that we have these kinds of um, in, embedding within these social collective entities. And this is, it's, it's a hugely important part of the way that we structure our lives. I, I don't want to deny that for a moment. The question is whether, whether those identities are sufficient to justify those kinds of actions. And, and, and so a nice kind of case that I like to, to draw out the intuitions that I, that I think are very 
go with here um, is to think about a case like the, uh, the takeover of Cadbury's chocolate by Kraft. So Kraft was obviously a big US conglomerate. Cadbury's was um, a very old, long-standing firm founded by Quakers that had an incredible kind of social mission. And people who worked there, um, you know, it, it, it it's, uh, developed a village for its workers very, very early on. It was very, uh, um, it was one of the pioneers in workers' rights. It uh, had an incredible <coughs> sense of social mission. Um, and the people who worked there uh, really had this very, very strong identification with this company as a kind of values-driven organization. If you think about the kinds of structures that we bet our life in, our state is obviously incredibly important, but our employer is unbelievably important as well. We spend much more time in the context of our employment situation than we do in, as it were, you know, interacting with state bodies. So here's something that looks a little bit like the way that Michael Walter describes the state, right? An enduring community with expressing shared values um, that uh, is very significant to the lives and identities of a number of people, um, you know, which, um, uh, which, you know which, which, which has this kind of ongoing identity. And then, um, 2005, I think it was, gets taken over by Kraft. Its autonomy is completely destroyed. The very nature and values of that community gets completely altered in very, very significant ways. No one thinks if it was necessary to stop that takeover um, to use lethal force, nobody thinks that that would be justifiable, right? No one at all. Um, no one even thinks that, that much lower levels of force would be justifiable. And that's very interesting, right? Why, why do we think that? I mean, here's something that is different to a state that seems to be doing comparable kinds of things to the way that we think about these very important roles that the state has. But nobody would think that it would have the permissions to engage in these kinds of violent, coercive practices. So I think this really forces us to, you know, if you think about the way that people who move, who immigrants who move from one community to another, when you think about the way that um, community identities exist through enormous wrenching changes of political system, uh, you know, as for example in the Soviet Union or former Eastern European countries, and you think about the way that those social structures can be incredibly resilient and survive that, it really makes me question, you know, that that, that kind of premise that because they're very significant, that they that they should enjoy that those rights of lethal protection. Professor McMahon, no, I was going to say something, but there are too many hands. So okay, let's take a student question in the suit here, please. Sorry. Good afternoon, I'm uh, Robert Miller. I'm from the University of Vermont, and my question is: You advocate a morality level for the soldier on a personal level. So how do you incorporate drones into that level of morality? And my, my um, example I thought of was, say I'm a commander on the battlefield, I get attacked by drones. Do I have the justification to kill the drone commander of the enemy, or do I only have the justification to disable the drones that he's using? I think drones are weapons like any other weapon. They're kind of long-range weaponry. And if you're fighting justly, and the only way you can stop the drones from being fired at you is to kill the drone commander, then I think that's perfectly permissible. Just like he's just like any other operator of lethal long-distance weapons. I mean, we've had cruise missiles for a long time. They're a bit like drones, except that they—it's more difficult to recall a cruise missile. In fact, I don't think you can, but they can. They can 
they can be guided, but I, as far as I know, cruise missiles can't be recalled. So one of the advantages of drone is that it can actually be recalled. It doesn't have to doesn't have to strike. But otherwise, they don't seem to be fundamentally different from other long range long range weapons. Next question, can I take um, three seats down? It's a Colonel Noth here. Hi, my name is Pam Birdie. I'm also a cadet from the University of Vermont. Uh, my question is in regards to the justification of war and how you can transcend the cultural boundaries of that. Because it was mentioned that there'd be a global court, but wouldn't that be homogenizing the entire globe under the same standards of justification? And in the United States, we're very individualistic. We pride ourselves on our own ideas and our own thoughts. Whereas in many other countries, they function under the umbrella of thought of the community that they're in. And they don't have that sort of individualistic, educated, you know, educated mindset to make their own decisions. And with regards to justification of war, they could be just as well justified under their cultural beliefs as we are under ours. So how do you transcend that cultural boundary and barrier with regards to the justification of war? Just, just briefly, uh, this is an enormous practical problem, but it's not necessarily a, a theoretical problem. So it's, it's a real theoretical problem if you believe that uh, morality is relative to culture. Um, but as I said in response to the first question, I just don't think that's true. What we're trying to do here is to understand the morality of war as it really is. We're not just trying to make something up for, for our little group or our little culture. We're working very hard to try to understand this in the most objective, impartial way possible, taking account of the contributions that other cultures have made to uh, our thinking about war. Um, interestingly, there are areas of the world where um, not much thought has been devoted to this matter. Um, people still may have passionate beliefs in these other cultures. But these are beliefs that they've just been handed from the past and have accepted more or less unreflectively. And not much thought has gone into these beliefs when they were first formulated. Um, so my, my view is people can get this stuff wrong. We can get this stuff wrong. We do get it wrong. Um, and it's, it's, it's one of our most important duties to try to get it right. Uh, and, and also to try to facilitate understanding by others. And that's part of the function of the international institution that I've been gesturing towards, is to try to provide a forum for deliberation, debate, and so on, as well as judgment. I guess um, to go off of that, with say 9-11, where the attacker gets killed in the attack, and that is their form of attacking, how do you justify that if we don't actually have an enemy to attack against because he was killed during the attack? Well, you don't. That is, if, if there's nobody else who poses a threat, it's all over. Um, but the fact is that the people who uh, arrange their own deaths as part of the suicide missions are not acting in complete isolation. They are part of groups 
that consists of other people who are preparing and planning to do the same kind of thing or other kinds of things. So it's the, the survivors uh, who continue to pose a threat to us against whom we have to defend ourselves. I mean, I mean just as a, as a practical question for how you can think about engaging in that project, I think the way that you can do that is by going out um, trying to engage in a serious and thoughtful and reflective discussion with as many people as you can, right? You can, you know, philosophy, right? By another word. And you can do that with your professors, with your superiors, you can do that uh, with other groups outside of your own. You can do that when you travel. Now, not everyone is going to be amenable to that, but I think just as a practical issue, if we're going to make progress, if we're going to um, make progress in this, this undertaking that Jeff's describing, that's all that we can do. Invite other people to enter the discussion and do it seriously and honestly. I think I've been missing this side of the room. Let me go to the, uh, actually, our midshipman here on the side, please. So, considered a few months ago, the UN recently passed a resolution finding that North Korean leadership is in violation of crimes against humanity. So, hypothetically, let's assume that tomorrow, South Korea invades North Korea to liberate their people. So, we would consider their cause to be just because they're trying to liberate the people who are being oppressed by their government. Whereas North Korea, if they were to fight back, they're defending their sovereignty of their nation. So my question is, I'm trying to kind of push you guys a little bit more on the sources of a cause's justice, and what do you think on the rights of a people versus the rights of a state? Well, I think it's true that the state of North Korea is one giant dungeon. The, one of the problems you face with a society like that is that some very significant proportion of that population are willing inmates of that dungeon because they have been systematically brainwashed and deluded by their leadership. The problem there is that some significant proportion of those people are willing to defend their dungeon because they don't have any vision of anything else. And I think that it's, it's such a, uh, in an enclosed space that it's hard for people to tell how widespread dissent and dissatisfaction in that country is. Um, and I do think it, it, we're thinking about what can be done for these poor people who are being brainwashed, starved, stunted, uh, and having their lives systematically ruined by their government. We're thinking about what can be done for those people. Um, we have to take into account that these are people with their own beliefs and, 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 and so on, so that it, it, it would be much better if somehow or other we could enable these people to understand their situation better, I mean, rather than go in and forcibly liberate them. So this is part of what David was saying um, when he mentioned jus uh, interbellum, or what, whatever the Latin term was, that what, what we can do short of war, what we can do uh, to achieve our just aims short of having to go to war. This, this is a very problematic case, but I, I, I wouldn't advocate war against North Korea as a, as a, 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 
first resort. I, think I would just add, I, mean, I think this goes back to the comment I made to the gentleman at the front here. I think you're, you're just asking the wrong questions about it, right? What, 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 we, what our approach says to you is that you, you have to look at this in a much more granular way. Right, so there, there is no such thing, on my view at least, there is no such thing as a right of national self-defense. And there is no such thing, I think I would even go so far as to say, as we're traditionally understood that, as a right of humanitarian intervention. What there is, is a right to use necessary and proportionate means to interdict significant violations of persons' rights. Now that may involve a lot of different kinds of actions, but you need to get away from this traditional, you know, this way that's so ingrained in our thinking, of thinking that there is something like a right for one nation to defend itself against another, or even a right for states to engage in humanitarian intervention in other states. It really just is about looking at what particular actions by particular individuals or groups of individuals may be uh, necessary, proportionate, and justifiable in the context of some kind of a grave threat to civilians. Can I just say one quick thing? Does Kim Jong-un have a, a sovereign right to remain in power in North Korea? My view is clearly not. This man has no rights at all. If, if we were to, if, if, if I could press a button and have him just launched out of North Korea, um, <laughs> somewhere else, or even just into the ocean or whatever, would I have violated his rights? No, he has no right to be telling these people what to do and be ruining their lives in that way. Then, I'm sorry, can I push that a little bit for the, who decides whether he has the right to rule? According to the North Koreans who worship him, yes, he's the great general, he protects us, of course he has the right to lead us because he knows what's right. But everyone else who was found in violation of crimes against humanity says, well, of course not, he's crazy, he has no idea what he's doing. And nobody decides this. There's just a truth about the matter. And we could find that out by engaging in further arguments, see which of us had the better argument. I, I could pretend to be a citizen of North Korea who claims that he's divine and all this other kind of stuff. And you could be represent uh, somebody else. And it, the truth would probably emerge, but it would be which of us has the best arguments here. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, First of all, I don't think either of you would support the Citizens United decision. You're, you're correct. All right. <laughs> so, um, I guess my... For me, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I know that context, but... Uh, well, the idea that corporations are persons, they're going oh, yeah, to spend yeah, as much yeah. money as they want. Um, which is not the law of the land. I expanded recently. Um, what happens to the traditional criteria of um, legitimate authority? Because it, it seems like the legitimate authority is the individual soldier. Therefore, the, the President of the United States would no longer be the legitimate authority. Ultimately, it's the legitimate authority is the individual soldier who's in the United States Armed Forces. Well, what I would say, if I may, is that I don't understand the traditional requirement of legitimate authority as uh, some kind of necessary condition for a morally necessary condition for the resort to war. I regard it as some kind of procedural constraint on the resort to war. I certainly don't think that any authority is capable of magically making it permissible for somebody else to go out and kill other people. So to that extent, yeah, I think you're, you're right. There, there really is no 
there, I mean, what I would say is there is no legitimate authority. I don't, I don't think individual soldiers are really legitimate authorities either. They, they make mistakes and so on. I, I just, I, I doubt the relevance of this notion of authority, except procedurally and instrumentally. Authority, I don't believe, has any deep justificatory force in making it permissible to kill other people. And I'm saying that I'm going against powerful traditions in legal thinking associated with people like Joseph Graz and others. But that's Please, sir. I'd like to ask a follow-up question on my rights uh, question, if I could. Um, Dr. McMahon, uh, you said that rights were like having limbs, so I would take that as an evolutionary source of rights, and morality uh, would ultimately be uh, something on the order of uh, preservation of the species, I suppose. Uh, Dr. Roden, you said that you felt that uh, rights were a matter of reciprocity. So uh, a source from a social contract. Now, the larger question I have is where we're going with this. And I, there's been individual questions as to the hows. But would you gentlemen differentiate for me and for this group uh, why what you're saying is not deontological, that is, the ends justify the means, and that it is not anarchist, because what you're, what you're actually saying to me um, is that the individual is, the, is the, the sole and final source of what is right or wrong, and that there is no collective, there is no, no national. Uh, let me, let me just okay. Quick, so quick clarification. Um, is, uh, it, it's not right that I think that morality has any evolutionary source. What I meant is that uh, morality is real. It exists. It's like it's not part of the physical world, but it is real. In the so even though you don't see a, a theological reason for morality, that you you see that it is some kind of eternal good. I see it as being the, independent of anything that I think or believe, or anything that you think or believe. It doesn't arise from our desires or our beliefs or anything. It is what it is. It's something that we discover. What, yeah. I don't think it has a divine source. I don't think it has an evolutionary source. It is just part of reality that there are certain things that we have reasons to do, things that we have reasons not to do. My own particular view is, as you would call it, deontological. But that is actually antithetical to the idea that the ends justify the means. The whole, what differentiates deontological morality from, say, consequentialist morality, which is the view that says, roughly that the ends can justify the means, is that the ontological morality claims that there are actually constraints on what it is permissible to do in pursuit even of good ends. That's what distinguishes the ontological morality. Your questions? We should be very brief here, yeah. because he's only asked two questions in the middle. Yeah, very, very broad questions. These uh, groups, fundamentalists, I think we're, we're not quite right. But I just wanted to say that we can disagree about a lot of those questions. And I'm not sure that that's actually going to uh, influence the debate here today. Because almost everybody, I'm assuming everybody in this room, thinks that we as human beings have rights. 
those rights are incredibly important features of our morality, and amongst the most significant those is the right not to be killed or attacked. As long as we agree with that very minimal basis, then we're into all of these questions in a very serious way. Can we see where we stand on student questions again right now? So, uh, please, Pierce. Sure, Ted Wilmack, uh, United States Military Academy. I had a, a couple responses to some things you said. Um, I think we, we've agreed that we have these inalienable rights, whether they come from God or wherever you want to think they come from. Um, and, sir, you said something about craft food and a chocolate company, I think, and how that takeover was peaceful and, you know, there was no no violence associated with that. Um, and, and I guess uh, the difference that I see is that, you know, we, we agree we have these rights, right? And we have countries, and, and this debate has been back and forth about, you know, basically what is the purpose and, you know, why do we even have states? Why not just individuals with rights and we respect those rights? Um, and I guess as someone who has sworn to protect the Constitution, uh, the U.S. service member, um, you said, wasn't a tool. Uh, I guess I disagree with that a little bit because as someone who is sworn to protect those rights, um, my duty is not necessarily to defend my own life, but uh, to do the will of the people and protect the rights of the people, not necessarily lives. Um, and to take a, uh, an example from Valley Forge, um, when some of the, the soldiers, their, their tour was up and they were done, um, George Washington still needed soldiers to fight the British, right? And he gave a great speech, and they fought, even though they were no longer being coerced to fight, they weren't being paid. Um, and while that may be the best way to get soldiers to fight, um, and in a, in a perfect world with great leadership, you know, guys fight better when they're inspired, not when they're forced. Um, if, if half the standing army today were to say, I conscientiously object, I'm not going to the Pacific to fight. How do we preserve and protect these rights? Right. Great. So just a couple of reactions. So the first one is you referred to these rights as inalienable. I think that's quite right, although it's a very powerful and familiar idea. If it's true that we can forfeit rights, which has to be the case if there's such a thing like a right to self-defense, then um, these rights can, in a sense, be alienated. They can be alienated by engaging in wrongful, unjust attacks on others, and that's kind of what I was getting at when I talked about this idea of reciprocity underlying rights in that sense. So that's, that's just an aside. Um, so it's very interesting when you described your orientation towards service, the way that you started to talk about it was in terms of your willingness to die in defense of the community and the rights embodied in the Constitution. Now, first thing to observe is that that's a very, very different thing than the questions that have concerned us mostly today, which is your right to kill another person or another human being. And the difference is obviously just that your right is your own. Sorry, your life is your own. And it's within your purview to dispose of that as you will, to make that, that commitment, to make that sacrifice. And you know, that is something that I that I, you know, I think we have to honor and recognize. But it's a fundamentally different question when you're talking about using violence or lethal force against another being that they have I mean, and the difference is just that there has to be an other element in the story there. It can't just be that 
the society, um, the state, the constitution that uh, that you serve has instructed you to do it. Now, that can't ever be a sufficient justification for engaging in an action that potentially infringes the rights of others. I just wanted to say very quickly on this that what Dave and I are, are primarily concerned to say is something like this. Some of the wars that countries fight, let's suppose true of the United States in some instances, don't protect the Constitution. They don't defend the rights of the people. They violate the rights of others, and they endanger the Constitution, and they endanger the people you're sworn to protect. So if your job, if you see your job as protecting the Constitution and protecting the rights of American citizens, then there's some wars that you ought not to fight in and that you ought to oppose. Just let me give you a, a, a non-American example, just give you this to think about. Nazi soldiers fought on behalf of Germany under Hitler. Were they protect, did they actually protect anything important, and did they protect the, the rights and lives of German civilians? No. When Hitler led Germany to war, it resulted in the absolute ruin of, uh, uh, of Germany. Why don't we move on with some more questions as we do run on time. Professor Lubin. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the really important reminders that both of you pushed on us is that uh, you can't ultimately farm out conscience to a role or an institution. And that that's true for somebody in the military as much as for any other roles. Uh, I do think that institutional roles sometimes set um, presumptions about what what we should take for granted. When in cases of uncertainty, we should defer to others. And it seems to me that with military roles, at the odd bellum side, one of those uh, institutional constraints is civilian control of the military. The idea that military are making their own decisions in cases of uncertainty rather than civilians might threaten the values of civilian control of the military. And on the inbellow side, uh, the notion that it's really important that militaries be highly disciplined bodies, that that's the thing that, stop, that, that saves innocent people in wartime, because it stops militaries from becoming uh, disorganized uh, bloodlust rebels, uh, means that there's more of a presumption um, for a soldier uh, or a sailor in, uh, in time of war to defer to the hierarchy. And you know, while I'm not saying that you never make decisions of conscience, that you're farming out your conscience, either to the civilian leadership or to the military hierarchy, shouldn't there be a stronger presumption of, on behalf of deference for somebody in the military role that's created not by the, the structure of moral obligation, but by the fact that civilian control of the military is a really good institution, and and military discipline is a really good institution, and both those institutions should have some kind of weight in our decision making. Uh, well, two things. Um, first of all, my my view about this is that there is an asymmetry, moral asymmetry, between refusing to do something, like engage in an act of violence, 
and engaging in an act of violence in disobedience to um, civilian instructions. Now, I think in principle there are exceptions to that. I, I would have admired some of the UN forces if they had violated orders and protected innocent people in Rwanda, for example. Um, but that would have set a very dangerous precedent, I agree. Um, but I do think there's a difference between the idea that soldiers have a right to say no about killing people, you know, to, to an order to, to kill people, and their feeling that they have the right to go off and kill people without any kind of authorization or command from their larger community, that is, that they can initiate wars on their own. Um, I, I think arguments can, can be given for this asymmetry. I do think a, a, an obedient military is, is a good thing to have, but I think an unreflectingly obedient military is worse than one that permits uh, a fair amount of reflection and has provisions for conscientious objection. And I have, there are a lot of arguments for this that I can't go into now, but basically they have to do with the fact, I think it's a fact, that most soldiers believe that whenever their country goes to war, the war is a just war. And that's a very hard belief to overcome. So soldiers are going to have this very strong disposition to fight in order to do so, no matter what anybody else says. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we have so many unjust wars throughout the world, that people do believe that their war is unjust. So it's going to take a lot to persuade a soldier to become disobedient. And the most likely reason why a soldier is going to be disobedient and refuse to fight in a war is that that war is, in fact, unjust, if the soldier is thinking morally. Um, so I, I don't think that these problems, which I see as more practical than theoretical, uh, are insuperable. Yeah, I just um, pick up on a couple of those themes. So, um, so I think I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the idea that authority structures play a really significant role in these questions than, than perhaps Jeff is. But I think you need to think about what what that role is and how it plays out. So, um, so one of, one of the um, so I I I think Jeff is right to say that there is a significant. Um, difference between um, decisions to engage in unauthorized uses of force and decisions to exempt yourself from authorized or, or, or you know, uh, operations, uses of force that you've been, been ordered to do. And this was put to me, I think, quite nicely and elegantly by a uh, former West Point professor, Bob Underwood, who said, you know, what, what, what would somebody who kind of agrees with these arguments and refuses to fight in an operation that he's been commanded to, to do so by the civilian authorities. Is he's saying, you can do that operation, you just can't do it with me, right? And that's very, very different from somebody who you know, initiates an action without um, other authorization. Why, why is the authorization to engage action important? Well, part of the reason why it's important is because by, um, uh, by undertaking an action, with you know, in the context of your of your military command, you are um, imposing certain kinds of costs on your polity right? because you're you've now 
taken a military posture which is going to invite some kind of response on your policy. So it's a natural thought to think that that can only be an appropriate thing to do if it's gone through some kind of collective, appropriate democratic decision-making that's weighed whether those costs are appropriate to bear. I think that's a big part of the reason why the kind of activist interpretation should be resisted. But the asymmetry on the other side is that exactly the one that you made. You can't farm out the conscience. Right? So even if you're required to do it, um, you may use a kind of a heuristic, a rule of thumb, right, that says if the authority is a good one, it's more likely that when they tell you to fight, that's the right thing to do. The only thing I would say about that is that, you know, number one, even if that's true, the most you're going to get out of it is an excuse, as Jeff said earlier. Number two, you really have to reflect on how good this heuristic is, given what we know of the historical record. Right, so there was a nice map that was going around the internet recently, and it's a map of the world with, color, with uh, countries colored in, um, and the countries that were colored in are the countries that Britain has not invaded. <laughs> and, and it turns out there's about six of them, right? <laughs> you know, Liechtenstein, Monaco, <laughs> there's a couple of kind of Central America, you know, uh, you know. And you can look at this and you have to say, how good is my state actually at determining what is and isn't, you know, just for? Things like that should maybe give you pause. Um, the final thing I want to say is that um, I think one of the reasons why this kind of individualistic line of argument that Jeff and I and many others have been pursuing over the last 10 years, I think one of the reasons why it's got traction is not just you know, the brilliance and correctness of our arguments, <laughs> but, also, um, but also the fact that, that these ideas, I think, really align with much, much bigger transformations that are occurring within society within politics and within technology. So in many, many domains, traditional top-down authority structures are being challenged by a whole series of transformations that empower individuals, empower them with more information, with more knowledge, with more capacity to act independently of these traditional authority structures. I mean, even within strategic thinking, right? We've had the idea of the strategic corporal for several decades now, right? And this is fundamentally the idea that we have to think about agency, even strategic agency, in a way that really allows for individuals very, very far down the chain of command to be making calls independently. And I think that this, this, you know, this way of thinking that we're, that we're suggesting is very, very much aligned with that. And given our timeline, we should probably limit it to one final question. Ma'am in the middle, would you care to offer that? Good morning, gentlemen. I'm Shannon Miller from the University of Pennsylvania on um, RCC. And I just wanted to follow up on uh, one of the cadets behind me, his question um, regarding, you know, we don't necessarily take an oath to defend our own lives, but rather uh, the rights of the American people, which are in the Constitution. And Dr. Burton, I think you were starting to say how um, they're, they're, that just can't be the only thing um, that is, but rather there's something else. You could touch a little bit more on that, and if, if that perhaps might be um, some sort of cultural relativism. Okay, so um, I don't think it's a form of cultural relativism. Um, so I hope it's not, because I'm, I'm not a, you know, I passionately disagree with the idea of cultural relativism, as, as Jeff has said many, many, many times today. Absolutely correctly, there is a right and wrong answer about these things. We may only have dimly apprehended it, but you know, our our collective obligation is to try and articulate that as, as best we can, and we can't do that unless we recognise that on some of these matters, at least, 
it just is a right or wrong answer, whether different people from different cultures think that way or not. One very short, um, I guess, twist on that. I think the 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 idea of um, keeping in mind the differences that we see in different cultures is important because it reminds us to engage in this inquiry with a sense of humility, right? Uh, to remind ourselves that although things seem really, really clear from where we sit, we may just be wrong about some really important fundamental things. Uh, and we can also get that sense by looking back at our history. Right? So there was a period not so long ago when we were absolutely convinced that men were superior and deserved different rights to women. Uh, really not so long ago when we thought that way about homosexuals and, and ethnic minorities. Um, uh, or the history of slavery. Many of these examples should, should really give us pause to think about whether the things that we take for granted really are aligned with that truth. But I think the right conclusion to draw from that is not the cultural relevance conclusion that just says, well, back then they thought slavery was okay, today we think it's not, it was okay for them, it's not for us. It's to say, boy, we really need to pay attention to these things because we often get these things wrong in a really, really fundamental and profound way. So I think that's the right takeaway from that. Now, in terms of you know, how to think about the correct kind of engagement for someone thinking about entering a service career, I think that the way that you just put it is, is roughly the right one. Right? It's to say that the legitimate role and um, proper purpose of a service man or woman is to engage in the defense of the rights of American people, yes, potentially also non-American citizens as well, but in a way that conforms to the rights of other persons around the world. And so, you know, to come back to the formation I've used a number of times today, what that means is that force can be permissible when it is a necessary and proportionate interdiction of an unjust attack on a person. That's, that's the question. That's my reformulation of your statement, that it is about the protection of rights. But that's very different to a service idea that says that we are here to serve the interests of the, the state that we belong to, uh, and to, and to simply act as a tool in the civilian authorities' conception of that interest. Those are, those are two very different questions. And I think the way that you articulated is actually very, very much the right one. So would you say that uh, instead of taking an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, it should more specifically say to take an oath to protect and, well, to only say this part, to protect and defend the American, the rights of the American people and people abroad in general? That, that to me feels closer to the way that you should be thinking about it. So ladies and gentlemen, we've been treated to a great privilege this morning to have two of the world's foremost experts on just war theory here with us. I suggest we thank you.